the flexibility of running my own schedule, I can't put a price on. Tell us how that talk went. Man, got to go back to that day, huh? <laughs> yeah, we have to. Because <laughs> uh, it's hurting me just thinking being in your shoes, having to bring this up. So I love this guy. We got tattoos together in college. Like we're, oh, damn. You a hunter? I am, yeah. How'd you get into it? Uh, you know, my dad started me turkey hunting and deer hunting in Pennsylvania when I was little and kind of skipped it for a while while I was a, a single dad and then got back into it when my uh, brother-in-law kind of pulled me back into the woods. And so I love it. No, I've been doing a similar thing. I haven't played soccer in probably about six years. And then I just started up a couple of weeks ago again and focus on more business stuff. And then I'm like, I have to, I have to get back into, I, I go to the gym pretty often, usually a couple of times a week. I've done a lot of running. So it's been fun to kind of get back into that. Yeah. You know, I think entrepreneurs go through that. Like their business becomes their, their mistress and their workout and everything. And then they wake up one day and they're overweight and tired all the time. And they, <laughs> need to get back into it. And then, then we realize, you know what, we're not 23 anymore. Yeah. I think I find that over and over again with the people I talk to, because you almost have to be that dedicated to start your own business. You do have to be focused and myopic and it's hard to, your business is a jealous, jealous mistress, they say. And I, I think he does not want you to do anything else. And it's really hard to find, I want to say balance, but I hate that word, but Right. Yeah, it's hard to figure out. And it takes a while to realize that your health and those types of things enable you to be a better leader. I think it just takes time on board to figure out that you need to have time for yourself. You're going to be more present when you're in your office and your health. That's one of the big lessons I've learned. If you're not taking care of your health, you are not taking care of your business. Do you want to tell us about your mistress? Yeah, yeah. So I actually have two businesses. The main one is JEB Commerce. We are a digital marketing agency. We started out 2004 doing affiliate management for retail companies. Started out in a basement bedroom, hired my first employee that worked in that basement bedroom with me. And then after a very awkward 9 a.m. walk up while I was on vacation and my mother-in-law wanted to know from my wife, who's the strange man in her basement, we decided to build an office shed in our backyard. In 2016, we acquired a company, expanded our services, and now we're able to reach all sorts of different businesses. So we do usability and user testing for all sorts of websites, retail and non retail, paid search, display, advertising, analytics, and affiliate marketing. And the other business I run is called Renewed Horizons, and it is a, a health agency for adults with developmental disabilities, something entirely different. And we have in-home programs and a day facility where adults with developmental disabilities get to come in and work on a plan to help them integrate into society, help them learn and grow and, you know, keep being a part of uh, society. Then our ResHab programs helps those individuals continue to have some independence by living on their own with minimal help. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about working in your basement? How did that work? Well, it was great. You know, I freelanced before I went out on my own. I was doing that anyway. And, and the basement had its, as a single dad doing it, it was great. There were really no downsides to it at all. I had a relatively large home for the area and, and for a, 
a young single dad. And so I had the room. It allowed me to do everything I wanted to with my sons. I got to walk them to school every day. I was able to be at every single event. As I got married and we had more children, that wasn't the best place for me. I know a lot of people work from home and, and it works, but there were a lot of downsides. I found that while I was at work, I would cross over into my wife's domain of running the house and it did not create a great marital environment. And having someone else, although that my first employee was uh, my best friend and he worked for me for many years and still very, very close. It made it less awkward, but it was still, it's hard to run a business with employees from your home in your home. And that just led to a lot of unique situations. I would travel a lot. It's just awkward to come into your boss's wife's home as she's caring for children and, and running a house. So it worked while it did. It kept our costs low, which is a huge thing in, in starting a business. I would start a business like that again, but I don't think I'd ever take any of the businesses that I'm running back to the house. And I know you started talking about your company, but did you introduce your, who you actually were and, and where you're located? My name is Jamie Birch, located in the resort town of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, up in the Panhandle. And I've been doing digital marketing since I graduated college in 99. You graduated college in 99. What college did you go to? And did you start your company right from then? I went to Central Washington University. I graduated with a degree in business, was just a few credits shy of a double major in economics. I didn't start my business right away. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I interviewed for every type of position, Target, retail, you know, management, a blockbuster video management, Waddell and Reed and a bunch of finance companies and even manufacturing. My family has a long history in manufacturing. And so I interviewed for a lot of those and had a bunch of job offers. Just wasn't excited really about any of it. My dad sent me an article about a dot-com kid, 21, driving a, a Bugatti or, or some million-dollar car. I remember it as a Bugatti. And I thought, well, I really like cars and I really like money. So let me check out this thing. So I interviewed with a couple dot-coms and that, that's where I became, started my career as a search engine guru at a company called Netivation in Post Falls, Idaho. And then as the dot-com crumbled, the bubble burst, that company closed and then I went to work for Seattle. I was trying to, I really wanted to get to Silicon Valley. That's where all the, the internet was happening, but really didn't have the courage to go that far away from family. Seattle was kind of the burgeoning, you know, Silicon Valley of the North. So went there to work for a software as a service company and, and 10 months later, that company closed as the dot-com bubble just completely burst. Then I went to Coldwater Creek. So I was at Coldwater Creek for a few years in Sandpoint, Idaho, running their online marketing, email marketing, search marketing, affiliate marketing. And then after a while, I thought, you know, I kind of hit a, a ceiling for myself there. And how old were you when you started hitting the ceiling? Gosh, that was in 2004, 2003, 2004. I'm 42 now. So I was, um, yeah, 29, 28. Mm -hmm. There just wasn't, didn't seem to be a path for me there. And I thought, you know, I, I love what I do. It's not really taking me all day to do what I'm doing for one company. I think I could do this for others as well. And so I started freelancing. I did some search work for a friend of mine at Audible, did some other search work. And then I was finding out that I realized I was making more money uh, 10, 15 hours a week than I was 40 and decided to take the leap. And so then I was basically, you know, a freelancer. Then I panicked. After about six months, and one of the clients I was freelancing for offered me a job, so I went to work for them. The eat what you kill kind of mentality of a business owner, I was a single dad at the time, and I just kind of 
the stress of what if this client leaves got to me. And so I went to work for another company for a little bit and then decided, you know what, I, I don't want to do this. My, my health was poor. I wasn't true to myself. I wanted to run my own business. And I, I, was, I got married at the time. And a really good mentor and my wife encouraged me to go out and start something on my own, hang up a shingle and make it permanent and take a run at it. And that was super scary. You know, with kids, we had no cushion. My wife was, she was working and we figured, you know what, we had some kids. So she went back to work. I decided, we said, okay, you'll go back to work for six months and then we'd be done. But in six weeks, we recovered our complete cash flow just by networking, talking to people and, uh, you know, doing good work. We got a lot of referrals. So that's how JEB started. Can you tell us about being a single dad and an entrepreneur? Because sometimes we hear it from the woman's point of view if he's an entrepreneur, but don't hear it very often, dad. Yeah. Well, there were, there were some awesome things about it. You know, a lot of people leave their jobs so they don't have a boss. And so then the realization becomes that never happens. And you tend to find when you're working with clients, you have many, many bosses. But the flexibility of being able to, you know, being the primary parent and being the only one who was making it to all these things, the flexibility of running my own schedule, I can't put a price on. I would have done that for a tenth of what I made, just being able to walk the children to school participate in their education, know their friends. During the summer, their friends could come over and I could get work done. That flexibility was uh, immense because you're kind of, single parents are in a weird place. And so it's tough to sometimes get support because they're not married. So married couples don't really know what to, to kind of where to put you. And they're definitely not single because they have all these responsibilities and you know, they can't do the things that single folks can. So you need the flexibility that your work provides to be able to navigate all of that. And that was so vital for me and the growth of the company to be able to, to just make everything. And it lowered the stress because you're always, I think a lot of parents, you know, there's a little bit of guilt when you work late and have to do those things and have to devote time to the business. And as a single parent, there's just like a whole lot of guilt about a lot of stuff. But running your own business and being a single parent, it gives you that flexibility to make sure that you're at all the things that you need to be at. Within six months of really starting off, and you call it Jeb or J-E-B? J-E-B, yeah. Okay, I didn't know if you were, people call it short for that or no, but for, yeah, for J-E-B, you said within six months, you basically had enough income that you're supporting you and a couple kids? Yeah, uh, in six weeks, we, six weeks. yeah, six weeks, we totally found and acquired all the clients to my wife could leave her job, which became a point of contention for her and her best friend who was her boss, that she committed to six months of working there and we didn't need her to. And so it was fantastic. Like hustle is rewarded. You, you get out there and, and you need to, you know, when I left that company, I had not one client, not a dollar coming in and probably 30 days of bills paid. And I don't remember what the exact amount, but I think it was about a month of cushion, which isn't a cushion. That's just your current bills, right? And so I got on the phone. A lot of people, what do you do? How'd you do it? I created a list and, and I really did what my dad did and what he taught us to do. When my dad would find himself looking for his next career opportunity, he'd find himself out of work for whatever reason. What he taught me to do is, you know, you go through all your contacts, you build your contact list and you build as many as you can. You put them all in there. And then every day you have a goal and you don't stop until you've reached that goal of number of people you've called and conversations you've had. And I know that really helped me in starting this business because I saw my dad do that and I saw the whole family involved in it. 
my mom would come in and be like, all right, how many did we get? It's three o'clock. You guys got two hours. My sisters and I would help him find the people because after what he taught us is, you know, you go through your contact list and then you develop a list of who do you want to work with and how do you get their contacts? And so he had the kids working on uh, who else do we contact at this company and that company while he was just dialing for dollars and hustling and going out there. And that's how he always found his jobs. And that's exactly how we found our first clients so that my wife could come home and do what she wanted to do. And, and we could really catapult the business. And what did your dad do? You said he jumped around and what were y'all helping him with at home? Well, my dad was and is... Uh, has always been in manufacturing. So he was a COO of companies like Adams Peanut Butter, Nally's. He worked at Olin Mills, uh, Olin in uh, in Pennsylvania when we lived there, and now is an energy efficiency consultant for all sorts of different manufacturing plants and school districts and things like that. Back then, what were you doing when you were calling, going through those contacts lists? Can you give us an example? Yeah, so I would start out with the easy ones, friendly faces that knew me well and would just generally appreciate a conversation with me before I got down to the cold call of someone who never heard of me. So I would warm up with a friend and I'd just call him and say, hey, I like to really be prepared and sometimes I'm too prepared. But I would try to think of two or three questions I could ask them, two that were about them. And real quick, are we talking about your business now or are we talking about when you were a kid and helping your dad? Uh, we're talking about my business now. Sorry, what do you think? Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, was, I was talking about both, but either one. So yeah, let's talk about your business now and then we can talk about that. Yeah, so that's what I did for, for the business. And I'd go and I'd call people in the industry that I would consider friends of mine. I'd ask two questions that were about them. Hey, what's going on in your life? How's the job going? Or something that would get them to open up because people tend to like to talk about themselves and enjoy that. And usually they have something pretty interesting going on. And then I would throw out a question of, hey, you know, I'm starting this new thing. What do you think about that? Like, do you have any advice? One thing I wouldn't do is assume I knew what I was doing. I would always ask, even though I was calling people that had done what, I've, what I do for less or had less experience, I would always have a question that, that would open them up to thinking about who maybe I could work with, but also get us talking about the industry in general. Because not every time did we talk about who I should talk to and, and it led to a business introduction or a referral. But a lot of times it just got the conversation flowing. I'm on their radar. They know I started this thing. And a lot of those led to email recommendations. So I would start at the real easy ones, people that I would quote unquote bro out with and get some confidence going. And then I would just continue down that list. Uh, my questions would get refined. The stories I could tell would continue to get refined. But I just tried to focus on, you know, hey, I want to talk to you. What's going on? How's your job going? What's the industry like? I'm thinking of doing this with this type of client. What do you think? Have you worked with anyone that I should be working with? Is there anyone that, that I would do good work for that, that you'd like to introduce me to? And I'd say that first week, every client I had in that first six weeks, I had talked to by then. And it, it took way less. I figured I'd spend six months making phone calls and have to go real, real deep in my contact list. And I didn't. Real good conversations led to other real good conversations led to contracts. Were you coming to them as like, hey, I'm the SEO guy? 
No, to the client or to the people I was calling originally? Well, people you're originally calling, they were hopefully potential clients, right? But more of a warm up. Yeah, it was really more of a, hey, we haven't talked in a while. Let's touch base. And at that time, I had moved beyond search engine optimization and paid search. And really, the conversations were about affiliate marketing. After that first job, I kind of targeted what I was doing and what I enjoyed to the affiliate marketing space. And just so we don't leave anyone behind, could you tell us what affiliate marketing is? Yeah, it's a digital marketing channel that allows advertisers to get exposure to all the digital marketing channels at typically a cost per sale basis through affiliate partners. So there are websites like coupon sites, there are shopping sites, there are loyalty sites like you promise. There are cashback sites like Ebates. There are content producers like Alpha Male and Modest Men and and a bunch of bloggers and things like that. So there are retargeting, remarketing affiliates. So what you're basically doing is working with a group of individuals that either have web properties or some sort of marketing technology, and you're paying them after they produce a sale for you. For example, Amazon has an affiliate program where if I was with them, I could give a link and make affiliate commission off that a certain percentage. Exactly. If, if you and I talked on this podcast about the blue microphone that I'm using right now or the headset that you're using and then the show notes, you link to that, uh, those two products on Amazon and some of the listeners click through, made an order, you would get a commission, usually between one and 50%. Every industry has a, a different rate, but that's how it works. Right. And it can be for anything. I just use Amazon because I think everyone knows that. But if, yeah. for example, like a dating websites or whatever, you could they send it to you and get a percentage, right? We've done it with uh, security systems, shoes, beauty, books, services, loans, just about anything. And you can even do it when there's no transaction. So you could pay per view of a video or a commercial, things like that. After that first week, because I'm thinking of the person who's at home and they're in the same position, right? They want their wife to come home. Maybe they're around your age at that point and being able to work it to go ahead and get those clients. Can you just give us more detail how it all worked out? Well, the first thing was making sure I knew what I was going to, to offer them. So the first offer was an audit. So I would offer to look at your program and in about a week, tell you how you're doing in, I think like, 24 different areas. And so that was typically an affiliate agency will charge, you know, 3500 to $5 to $10,000 a month for their services. And that can be kind of hard for, in my space, for someone starting out to pay someone. So I offered a, uh, I think a $500 or a $1,500 audit. Basically, what I was doing is seeing, can I get them to pay me to show them why they should work with me? and get a little cash to just extend the runway. Because at that point, I was trying to extend the runway, trying to get some other work in my portfolio and really show my value to as many people as I could. And so as I would get those introductions, that's what I would pitch. Would you like an expert in this field who's a known speaker, writer, and has worked with companies like Hilton and Coldwater Creek and, and all these? Would it be beneficial for you to have that person come in and tell you and benchmark you tell you what you need to work on and then tell you what you need to do and then who you should be doing it with. And that resonated with a lot of people. So those first clients started out as an audit and then they moved into permanent or contractual month to month clients. And I think that's really important and that you're just, hey, I need to get something in the door, right? Yeah. Because if you're doing it for free, you're not really, A, you needed money, but B, at least you're getting some traction that way. And I I know you uh, love this term, but what was your work-life balance in the beginning? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if work-life balance exists. <laughs> right, so, I know. Yeah, I was just kidding. <laughs> in, the, in the beginning, because it was me and two children and my business, that balance was, I think, easier to attain. I know I had a period of time in the morning to get ready for the kids to wake up, get them off to school. And then I had a period of time that I didn't have to worry about anyone bothering me or any other commitments. It was just me because the kids were taken care of. Then I had a period from, you know, three to, to six or seven where I could engage with them. And then, you know, once they were in bed, I could get back to it. So it was easier at that point because there wasn't a, another person. I, I wasn't married yet to where I had responsibilities and, you know, had to spend time with that person. So the work-life balance was easier, but I started to put weight on at the time because, you know, just starting this freelance. And then when I did get married, that was a struggle. And, you know, one of the things that, that I, I tell entrepreneurs starting out is, is running a business, owning a business is a crucible of self-awareness. And you are going to learn, hopefully, you can if you want, and you're open to it so much about yourself. And so what I would find is when the business wasn't working, or there were, there were struggles in the business, anxiety and things that I was holding on to, that would pull me away from engaging with the rest of my family. So the balance completely suffered. What I learned about myself is achievement, is how I value myself, how I'm helping others is how I value myself. And seeing that through the business, what I saw is during those times of starting out, there was simply no balance. It was all about the business because if I wasn't helping people there, if I wasn't achieving a next client, greater revenue, more success for the client, then I had no value. And so the engagement, the work-life balance just really didn't exist. It was, I have to do this at work, everything else falls apart and I can't fail. And it destroys relationships, that thought path. Did it destroy a relationship once upon a time? Because you had a child, was it with a girlfriend or a previous marriage or anything? Yeah, girlfriend. No, I, I, at that time I was in college and just starting out. So that it didn't affect that. It made my marriage very difficult. And I look back and see how absent I was from the marriage and from raising our kids that, you know, but for the grace of God and, and my amazingly patient wife, it would have. It very much would have. And I think, I think I've been able to recover the relationships that I may have impacted from that. But, you know, going from a single parent to being married and running a business and all of that, it's one transition and fire and stressful moment after another for a few years as you try to figure it out. But I think most of all, it was very impactful on my wife. You know, she celebrated me when we landed a, a client and she mourned and tried to pick me up when we lost one. And I feel like almost when you get married and did she already have a previous child as well? No, no. We had two together. Yeah, but it almost seems like it might have been more of a relief to you, more ease. I, I don't know if that be the case or not. Yeah, it was. And we talk about that now. And <laughs> so when I got married, I was like, awesome. So I can unload all this kid stuff to you. Exactly. Work. Exa yeah, yeah. That's, what I, that's what I would think if I was in your situation too. <laughs> Man, that is exactly what I did. And it was so bad. Uh, she was 23. I was 31. I had had, you know, raised kids on my own for four, five, six years now at that point. And I, you know, just hanging on by fingernails, hanging on. Yeah. Not quite sure what the hell I was doing in my business. Not sure what I was doing as a father. And now I'm married and I'm like, Hey, so here's these two kids. You're 23. Never thought you'd have kids. Now you have two <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and you're married uh, to an entrepreneur. Um, yeah, 
why don't you just take these guys? I'm so glad you're here. I love you so much. I'm going to go grow my empire, take care of these kids. And it took me, I think like three years, maybe, maybe more to come back and just go, I'm an idiot. Like I have a role to play and it's way more than bringing the check in. I can't imagine how difficult it was for her to come into a ready-made family and then be left it. I still worked in the home for most of that time, most of those, those first few years. But yeah, I definitely wanted to be like, hey, can you please, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you take these guys? But what I found and is one of the reasons we moved to the shed in the backyard and then not too long after that to an office was that I also didn't give her the room to lead in that area. So a lot of us entrepreneurs, we tend to, some take leadership, some it's just thrust upon, but leadership kind of comes to us, especially when, if you're capable at it, it's just kind of, people are always looking for leaders. Sometimes that's a great thing, but also it's a bad thing. I didn't let my wife do that while I led the business and let her lead the home. I, since I was in the home, I saw it all and I tried to do it all. And when you try to do it all, it all sucks. And that's what happened. At that point, when were you able to, uh, you said after six or six weeks, actually, she was able to come back home. I just want to jump back into the beginning when you were able to hire your friend and bring him on. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, we had always figured when we hit $10,000 a month, we'll be able to hire someone. And so this is, you know, 2004, 2005. And that was my financial marker. So I had a lot of financial training in college and it was all bad. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, I couldn't read a P&L and really any financial statement, which is either a, a damning of my attention span in college or of the, the curriculum come out of business school with an emphasis on finance and almost a degree in economics. You think you could handle money or to some degree. Addition and subtraction at that. <laughs> yeah, and, and sometimes division and multiplication, but not often. <laughs> right. I saw that, that I had enough business that now I'm kind of, I'm working more than is healthy and we're earning a lot of money and that's, that's fantastic. But we also felt a pool that, you know, God was telling us like, yeah, you have all this nice things, but maybe there's some other reason why you're being successful. And so then we started to look at, okay, maybe part of our, our work here is to offer people a millstone, a job. And at the time, the unemployment rate in our county was really miserable. So we said, all right, well, I'm actually going to continue to push for clients. So we, we have as much as I can handle, making more money than I ever thought I would. Maybe, maybe more money than anyone you know, in my family has ever made. We're doing really well. So we pushed harder and landed another client. And I've always tried to hire my friend since college. Like Our dream was to start a marketing agency together and conquer the world. And after college, he moved to Phoenix to a PR company. And then I had the opportunity to hire him. And I thought, what could possibly go wrong? by hiring, you know, your best friend. And he was my first full-time hire. And then after that, we hired a, uh, I think he was 16 years old. He job shadowed me for his senior project, told me he was 17 or 18. And I found out later he turned 16 while he was working for us. Remarkable young man uh, that became our second employee and worked for me off and on for a couple of years. And the way you said you were talking about hiring your friend, what could go wrong? So did anything actually go wrong or was it all great? A lot of it was great. There were a couple of things. There's, you need domain specificity when you're working with friends. I was pretty immature. I think he was probably two. And it was really difficult, not only for he and I, but his family and my family and all of us to kind of figure out like, who's talking, Jamie the boss or Jamie the friend, Steve the employee or 
Steve, the, the friend. So it was really, really difficult. You combine that with just really poor financial understanding on my part. The arrangement that we came up with wasn't sustainable and we weren't on the same page. I let things go where I shouldn't have. You know, it's crucible for self-awareness. Like I learned so much about myself in that process. I wish going back. Well, I was going to say, can you give us an example of things that you let go that you shouldn't have? I mean, so those entrepreneurs don't make the same mistake who are listening. Yeah. One, the financial arrangement. If you bring on someone, one, you're probably going to hire too early. So just mm -hmm. know that. And you're probably going to hire too high of a level. And that's one of the things I did. I would have started out with a minimum wage or just slightly higher person, trained them instead of thinking I can just bring someone in who has about the same experience and they can kind of run everything. He was good at and is still very remarkable at what he does, but I hired too early. And then accountability is something that I used to view as uh, mean. And we preach and teach the Enneagram here at JEB. I'm a two, which is a helper. And so I tend to caretake people instead of hold them accountable. So there were things, I honestly can't remember what they were. Uh, that was quite a while ago that I probably would have held them accountable on. And honestly, I was kind of a jerk as a, an employer. When things were good, things were great. When they weren't, I was kind of a monster. And so learning about how my type deals with stress has been eye-opening the last four or five years of things that I would have done differently. And just the there's a weird thing in between best friends when they work for each other that I don't think we were able to talk about and really recognized. So it was sometimes hard to uh, hold your employee accountable and other times it was hard to help them develop and help them improve their professional life and things they were doing. And it just, I didn't handle it well. It just became very difficult for us to maintain both. And, and I, I probably, you know, we have a really clear path of when we let someone go here. And we didn't have that back then. I didn't have the tool. I didn't have the training. And so what I have done in the past is would not take care of the things that needed to be taken care of, would not talk about the performance issues when they were happening. And I would let it build up and then I would explode. I think really looking back, that's really what happened. Let little things that we could have talked through, worked out, build up to a point where then I was just like, okay, you're out of here. You know, sometimes it's only, the only way you can learn those things is 12 years of business. <laughs> yeah, and going through them. Like, it's just like your first marriage, you know, or your marriage, right? When you started there, you don't think of it like, oh, hey, I'm focusing on trying to bring money into the family, right? And yeah. that's your one thing. That's what you're focused on. And yeah. when you get so honed in on something, other things drop. I mean, that's what happens in life. I think what up and down through different parts of your life. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you talked about financial arrangement. Can you give us a more specific example on that? Because that seems like that'd be a difficult thing to talk about. Yeah. Never sign an agreement with an employee that has them getting a percentage of revenue. There is a difference between revenue and profit and it's substantial. <laughs> Tell us, can you give us some details? Because yeah, I well, think this is super important. This is why I mean, people always want to talk about revenue, but what matters what you bring home. Oh yeah. And what we thought, man, if we make 20 grand a month, oh man, we're flying in Learjets. We're doing everything we ever wanted. No one in my family's ever earned that much in a month. Like, I don't even know if that's true any, you know, really. Uh, but you know, we're like, oh, 20 grand a month. If we could only get there, you know what? We'll give a cut of all the revenue from I think 15 and up, or maybe it was 20 K a month and up. And us entrepreneurs, we often like, and my dad has always told me this. We love to give away stuff that doesn't cost us anything and that we don't have yet. And that's what I was doing. Well, guess what happened? 
we hit that like right out of the gate. That didn't take long at all. Uh, You're for a good us. motivator. <laughs> yeah, like he was bringing in business. I'm bringing in business. Like it was just a party. We landed some great clients from some really strong relationships that I had. And we were able to negotiate with them like really good performance-based contracts. So if they did well, we did really well. And some of them were very, very lucrative. And what we found is, you know, he, he would have been earning more than I would have been, which is not necessarily a problem. I have salespeople that I love when they get to a point where they're driving a nicer car than I am, but it was that arrangement was choking the business because it was taking out more than the profit that we had. What percentage are we talking about? Just so we get a feel for it. I think it was 10%, 10%, which, you know, 10% of 20 grand, two grand, doesn't sound like a lot. When it costs you 18 to get that 20 or it costs you 25 to get that 30, you know, it starts to really, really build up. And so, yeah, we had a percentage of revenue, which I will never do anything outside of the contracts with my clients are a percentage of revenue. But as far as employees, that's, that was one big mistake. And it puts so much pressure. I put so much pressure on me by not really thinking that contract through. And I think it put pressure on our, our friendship. It put pressure on his job and his performance. And it just didn't work out. Yeah. Tell us how that talk went. Man. <laughs> Got to go back to that day, huh? Yeah, we have to. Because uh, <laughs> I, I, it's, it's hurting me just thinking being in your shoes, having to bring this up. So I love this guy. We got tattoos together in college. Oh, like we're, we're tight and, and we're tight now. And we do talk about this. We talk about, you know, a story of forgiveness on both our parts, redemption on both our parts. But, you know, I don't know if I've ever talked about this publicly. It was hard. I don't remember much about the conversation where I let him go, but I sure remember, you know, our conversation later, a couple of days later at a Starbucks. And, you know, I was always taught like, make it quick. It's going to be a shock to everybody and make it quick and give them time. We had that conversation. He wanted to meet at Starbucks to talk about it and was really gracious and wanted to know what he could have done better. But it was heartbreaking, man. It was, I bawled after that. Like just the idea of how much this hurt him and knowing that, yeah, I'm going to have to find somebody, but I'm, you know, I'm not have to find a job. He has to find a job and it's not a great market. Crap. I may have just lost like my best friend. It wasn't a long conversation at Starbucks, but it felt like a goodbye. It probably took us, I would say several years. It probably took us two years to reconnect. And then it probably took us another two or three to get back to the point where, hey, you know what? We have coffee every month now. We talk to each other, I'd say once a week regularly and, you know, building that, that relationship again and sitting across from him and going, I bet I have a huge part to play in this. I don't know if I want to even think about that. Maybe this could have gone different and man, I'm just flying by the seat of my pants and right now I got to do this and now I got to go talk to him again explain it in more detail and let him get frustrated and pissed. And he didn't, he was very gracious and calm and, but dude, it sucked. Like <laughs> it was, it was awful. And I can only imagine it. You don't know what you don't know. Maybe it would have just ended up just being the perfect partnership, right? For yeah. until infinity. When we're talking about balance as well, I imagine losing a friend. I don't know how often you talk to him versus maybe other friendships, but then you get part of your life missing there as well. Oh yeah. And our families were really integrated together. We were in a dinner group where our wives would cook dinners for all our families one night a week. And so we were integrated in church. It was 
I would bet we both felt like it was sort of a death, but the body was still hanging around. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, it was really hard. And I commend him because he, he handled it so well. He handled it better than I did. And I really think we are able to still be tight and best friends because of him not letting my immaturity as a leader get in the way for the rest of our lives. And then I think, you know, my self-awareness and growth of in being a leader and, and learning these things about myself, he and my wife and everyone around me has been able to see me grow. That probably makes it a little bit easier too. So looking back, is there any other experiences that you'd want to let the entrepreneurs know who are listening that you think are really insightful or could help someone who's trying to grow a business? Uh, well, one of them we talked about on our other call So no one hands you a book on the rules, regulations, taxes, and forms you need to fill out when you start a business. And I learned that when a gentleman showed up at my office, now I had four people working for me, came in and said, I'm looking for Jamie Birch. And I heard him and I I said, hey, I'm I'm Jamie, What's, what's going on? And he goes, you need to know that I have the authority and the power to arrest you and take you to jail today. (laughs) I'm like, hi. (laughs) Um, Okay. And he did this in front of all my employees. And this was your old best friend? No, this was just a, (laughs) yeah, yeah, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) He he would probably prank me with something later. No. And then I, I said, hey, why don't we not do this in front of everyone? Why don't we just go into another room? And I didn't know about unemployment insurance. I didn't know about registering with the the county, registering with the state. And he was there as a representative of the state, fully with uh, apparently power to cuff me and fine me and take me to jail if I didn't have those things taken care of. So what I'd say is, look, go to your county, go to your state and find out. Because while that wasn't a big deal in the long run, damn, that was embarrassing. We all thought I was going to jail. No one knew why. So that, that's one thing is go and look and engage. The other thing is, I was thinking about this as I was preparing for the call. What, what one thing? Financial literacy is vital. There was a reason why my dad said, to kept telling me to go get an accounting degree. If I had stayed and got an accounting degree, I probably would have been able to understand what was going on in my business and avoided some of the, the dark times that we've had in our history. And so, Understand a PL, understand balance sheet, understand cash flow. The first one is cash flow. Grab a cash flow statement. There's a really good book, and I can't remember it off the top of my head, that is just an introduction to those three things. Don't avoid it. Don't think that you're generating a lot of cash and so you can ignore it. That was one of my biggest mistakes. Because we're generating a lot of money, I don't have to worry about this stuff. You know, winning fixes a lot, but it also covers up a whole lot of things. That not making sure that I knew what was going on with the money led us to things like the other thing I wanted to share is don't borrow money just to make payroll. If you know your cash flow and you know your financial statements, you'll know when you won't have cash. We took out loans to pay for people that are no longer here and weren't here that much longer after I took out that debt. And it just, it was a bad expenditure. Once you get it, it's so hard to get rid of it. So financial literacy, if, if I could go back if, and any entrepreneur I'm ever working with, you know, that's where my coach and mentor started with me. That's where I start with them. You have to know what's going on in your business. And it's not nearly as hard as you think it is. And so that's what I would say. And what's the biggest mistake that you see new entrepreneurs make? It sounds like you deal with a good amount of them. Yeah, I think the first one is, oh, I love this. I think I'll make a product and sell it. 
and they never ask, does anyone want this? Is this even a viable way to do this? And so they get way ahead of actually thinking if there's a market for this. And I've, I've done this myself. I've spent three quarters of a million dollar on a software product that other people, over seven years, that other people have developed in 12 months and now I'm using their tools. <laughs> and so a lot of times, like I said, even myself, we are leading with our heart on a business decision or a new business or a product and we're not asking, does anyone want this? What is the best way to take this to market? Uh, and we're not actually going through like a SWOT analysis or creating a business plan. I got lucky with JEB. I didn't create any of those. I was in a, an emerging marketplace at a, a historic time in history that it worked. And so I could say, well, I just have a golden touch. So everything I touch turns to gold. And that's not the case. There's a whole lot of luck with a lot of preparation and a lot of hustle. But that's what I see them make the biggest mistake. And I always look at it as the, the scrapbooking store. In our town, I always see a scrapbooking store start up and then close. I always look at that and I'm like, I don't think the person who opened that store thought about the customer at all. They're buying everything on Amazon. That's where they're going. No one does this anymore. So I think that's what I've experienced is I really, I'm excited about this. So I'm not going to do the research to see if this is viable, what competitors are doing, what the pricing strategy should be. And I just go forward and I spend a lot of time and a lot of money and then only to find out what may have taken me a month of research to find out there's not a market for this. I know you don't want to give yourself props on it, but I think you did do it by actually having people pay you to do analysis, right? Yeah. In the beginning, because if you would have just kept doing it for free, you really wouldn't have known. I mean, people might've said, Hey, I'll do it. But when you actually started making money off it in the beginning and putting a price on it, then you actually had an idea that, Hey, you know, I've got something here that can work. Yeah. I guess I stumbled on a pretty good business practice. Yeah. I wish I would say that that's exactly what I was doing. I was more just hustling for money, but thank you. And looking back, you said you spent three quarters of a million on software, I guess, over seven years. What was the software and what do you use now? Well, we still use a majority of that software now, but I was, my hope was to roll it out as another company. And I'm not a very good software developer uh, and I didn't do the development, but that's not my forte. And so, you know, we didn't do the things that needed to be done. We, we didn't do everything I just talked about. Is there a market for this type? It, it was a, a CRM task manager, a reporting system. And what we use, still use to this day is relationship engagement manager. So it tracks where in an engagement funnel uh, an affiliate is with a particular client. Are they needing to be introduced to the client? Or are they fully optimized, driving as many sales and customers as they can be? But I wanted to roll pieces of that, the task manager, the CRM, and some other features out as its own company. And so I put a lot of money into that type of development and not look at what the competitive landscape was. We have some great things that are very unique to what we do, and not many people would need them except for the people in our space, and there's just not enough of them to make that viable. So yeah, it was a hard, expensive MBA degree that I earned on that. So how many people work for you today, and what are your revenues like? Our revenues will uh, top $3 million this year. We have 20 people working for us. Then our other business renewed, uh, I believe, will just be shy of $2 million in its fourth, third or fourth year of business. I think we have 30 employees there. Well, no, I appreciate you coming prepared and having all those little tidbits to share with us. I don't know if there's any last thing you want to leave with the entrepreneurs. Feel free to, but also what's the best way for them to reach you and say thank you for doing the interview? 
Oh, well, they can reach me at Twitter at Jamie E. Birch on Facebook, Jamie Birch or Jamie, J-A-M-I-E at jebcommerce.com. And they can search my name on Google. I'm, I'm one of the top results for that. So they can do that. And I think the, the last thing I say is if you're not learning a lot about yourself as an entrepreneur, start to look in that direction because a lot of the biggest problem you face in your business is the lack of awareness in yourself. And a good tool to do that is the Enneagram. But start to look inside and question, you know, your reactions, your behaviors, your beliefs, and that will lead to a more successful leader, which will lead to a more successful company. What's an Enneagram? So I make sure we're all on the same page here. So the Enneagram, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M, it's a model for finding out what kind of personality you have. It's kind of, people will equate it to a Gallup Strengths Finder or something like that. But where those are static, the Enneagram allows for growth and also helps you find out what you do in times of stress, in times of security, helps you see how you can grow and helps you find out, really learn about yourself. Oh yeah, we'll throw that information in the uh, show notes. So thank you for joining us, Jamie. No problem. Thank you, Austin. We appreciate you tuning in to another episode of Millionaire Interviews. If you're looking for other service-based interviews, then consider episode 36 with Dan Fantasia or episode 26 with Tarang Gosalia or try out episode 25 with Zach Smith of Funded Today. This awesome podcast is now approved by Spotify. So if you'd rather tune into our episodes via the Spotify app, then just go ahead and search for Millionaire Interviews.